So during August, we're going to be looking at a number of the Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 2 this evening. Um, If you'd like to turn to Psalm 2 in your Bibles. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, I pray that God will add add his blessing as we look at this psalm. So, Psalm 2. In a sentence, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus the King. And therefore... His people have nothing to fear from earthly rulers and earthly rulers should submit to him. That's the context in which we're going to be looking at Psalm 2 this evening. Luke, as he was writing in Acts, he twice refers to Psalm 2. Um, First in Acts chapter 4 and verse 25 Um, he attributes Psalm 2 to David he says you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant our father David why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain later in chapter 13 of Acts and verse 33 Luke reports that Paul quoted verse 7 of Psalm 2 when he was speaking to the Christians in Pisidian Antioch on his first missionary journey Paul said we tell you the good news what God promised our ancestors he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus, 
as it is written in the second psalm, you're my son, today I become your father. And this is the pivotal verse of Psalm 2. Although at the time David was writing it, it was still to be fulfilled. It was God's promise to his people. It was fulfilled when Jesus was raised from the dead. But of course it will only be perfectly fulfilled at a time in the future when Jesus comes again as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So I read Psalm 2 in the context of four different periods in time. In the time when it was written by David, in the context of its fulfilment in Jesus' time, in the context of the world we live in today, and in the context of a fulfilment at a future time. The psalm divides into four sections of three verses each. And those headings are on the screen now. It's ridiculous to rage against God, verses 1 to 3. Verses 4 to 6, God's response is to appoint his own king, King Jesus. And verse 7 to 9, draw out that Jesus is the king. And verses 10 to 12, encourage us to be wise and submit to King Jesus. So that's, the, that's my thought pattern, that's my structure as I, as I was looking at this psalm. So verses 1 to 3, it's ridiculous to rage against God. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Thinking about this in the perspective of David's time, David, of course, was a type of Christ. That is to say, he was typical of Christ. What he does mirrors or prefigures Christ in various parallels. David is writing, as Luke said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, about his experience in his day and what he could see going on in the world around him. As a youth, David had been anointed by Samuel under God's guidance as God's chosen one to be the king over his people, Israel. Ever since that time, all he had known was either personal or national unrest. From the time of his earliest victory on behalf of the Israelites against the Philistine Goliath, through the attempts of Saul, Absalom, Sheba to deny him his kingdom and kill him, 
the ongoing wars against the Philistines, even in his last days, the attempt by Adonijah, I knew I was going to have trouble with his name, (laughs) the attempt by Adonijah to stop the kingdom from passing from David to Solomon. David knew nothing but what is described in verses 1 to 3. His life experience was national unrest. And various people, kings, rulers, plotting against him, the one that God had told Samuel to anoint as his chosen one. Jesus' experience was similar. Jesus was identified by God as his chosen one when he was baptised at the beginning of his ministry. We'll refer to that again when we look at verse 7, but for now I'm interested in verse 2 and the parallel with David's anointing. When questioned, Jesus made it clear that his anointing was in preparation for his burial. And his burial was necessary so that he could be seen to have all authority over the religious leaders, over kings and rulers who had plotted to kill him. But unlike his forerunner David, he triumphed over death itself. I'm sure that when you read verses 1 to 3, you would agree that they accurately describe the world we live in today. In particular, in verse 3, we see more and more ways in which people rage against God and throw off what they see as his shackles, his chains. I'm thinking, what have we seen in the news this week? We've just been hearing about the issues in Burundi, but closer to home. Northern Ireland, the one part of the British Isles where gay marriage is still not legalised, yet yesterday was the Belfast Gay Pride Parade. This afternoon, the annual Belfast Pride service took place in All Souls Church. The blurb said, join us for a time of worship, reflection and meditation. Open communion, available for all. These days, when we talk about those who rage against God, we're not just talking about national or international opposition against the Lord and his anointed one, but something far more insidious. We're talking about opposition to the gospel from within the so-called Christian church. But the good news is that the Bible teaches us that God has a plan for the future to overcome their opposition. And God's response in verses 4 to 6 is to appoint his own king. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, 
I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. First, God laughs and scoffs. Almost like, (laughs) you can't be serious. Forgive me, Wimbledon was on when I was preparing this. Then in his righteous anger and in his wrath, he rebukes them, which terrifies them. So again, thinking of David as the type of Christ, we've seen how, despite opposition throughout his life, God was always with him and his purposes weren't thwarted. He was anointed as a youth by Samuel, but despite this, Saul opposed David. He was afraid for his kingdom because he knew that God was with David. The people sung, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul asked himself, what more can he get but the kingdom? After Saul's death, David is anointed as king over Judah to succeed him. David was the king God had chosen. And so he was installed as king in Zion, in Jerusalem. Jesus too was installed as king in Zion, in heaven. Whilst he was on earth, he had terrified the religious establishment with his counterintuitive teaching. The religious establishment had stirred up unrest that terrified the civic authorities. And in an unholy alliance, they'd worked together to put him to death. Yes, for a short time, Jesus was the one being scoffed at, but God had the last laugh. He raised Jesus from the dead and he installed him as king in heaven. Many unholy alliances still exist today. For example, what is the church doing hosting an annual service as part of Belfast's Gay Pride Festival? How does God rebuke the church today and demonstrate that his king is installed? Well, perhaps one of the ways is by largely withdrawing his blessing from the church in the West. Yes, individually we may be blessed, and there may be pockets of evidence of his blessing. But we don't experience the the revival blessings of, say, the Welsh revival of 110 years ago. Yeah, 110 years ago. Isn't God rebuking us? The established church has women clergy, 
blesses same-sex unions, promotes tolerance and acceptance of everyone, every belief, everything. Should we not be terrified by this? God is laughing at us, scoffing at us as the church redefines his values and standards. And all the time he still says to those who will hear him, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. It might not seem like it just now, but there will be a future time when the reality of Jesus being king will be evident to everyone. And verses 7 to 9 draw out that Jesus is and will be the king. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. David was prompted to say, I will proclaim the degree of the Lord. David had been encouraged by God in the context of his rule over God's people Israel to say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Sadly, David never trusted God fully to make the nations his inheritance. For example, he carried out the enrolment of the fighting men of Israel. So he never saw this prophetic word from God fully realized. And it was only in Jesus that this prophecy would be fulfilled. Jesus was and is God's son. At Jesus' baptism, we have it recorded in all four Gospels that the Holy Spirit of God was seen to descend on Jesus in the form of a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are, or this is, my son whom I love. The nations that are Jesus' inheritance don't depend on fighting men, but on Jesus' death and resurrection to bring his adopted sons and daughters into his family. Jesus is the only person ever born on earth a son of God. Everyone else must come, become a son of God by being adopted into his family as they're born again when they believe in Jesus. Jesus wants everyone to share in his family 
where God is his father and where he is God's son. And he's also the king that God has installed. In another place, Paul said that now is the day of salvation. Through David, God said that all we need to do is ask me. To be able to call on God our Father and to be one of his adopted sons or daughters, we must ask him. That's the essence of the gospel message. And it's just as true today as it was in David's time or in Jesus' time. That's why this verse is the pivotal verse of the psalm. And this verse was fulfilled in Christ's death and resurrection. Because in his triumph over death, Jesus overcame the destruction promised in these verses to those who choose not to ask him. Once again, it might not seem like it just now, but there will be a future time when the reality of Jesus being God's Son, the King he has installed, will be evident to everyone. And that's why we should be wise and submit to Jesus as King. Verses 10 to 12. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. These verses expand on the consequences of choosing to accept God's terms or rejecting them. In essence, it's our, it's our motive that's paramount. David could have felt fear and terror as he experienced the opposition of the nations of Saul and others around him. But he knew, so did Saul and everyone else around him, that God was with him. And David served faithfully. In doing so, he served God and fulfilled God's purposes. So it was David's motive that was paramount. Thinking of Jesus' time, it says, serve the Lord, kiss his son. Judas did both these things, yet he experienced the righteous wrath of God and was destroyed. His motive was not to serve the Lord with fear and to celebrate his rule with trembling. 
Now, serving the Lord with fear and trembling doesn't mean that we should be like slaves serving a tyrant, but our service must be from the right motives. Now, clearly there's a tension here that we can't fully reconcile, but which we need to be comfortable with. We're called to serve God because Christ first served us. That's our duty. That's our reasonable service. But we give our service willingly, out of love for God, because in Christ he first loved us. That is our motive. Jesus' motive was what had been agreed in eternity past between the Godhead that would be the means of salvation for all men and women. So Jesus willingly experienced fear and terror as he experienced the unwarranted wrath of God as he took the punishment for all of our sins on the cross. So, we should serve the Lord, whatever challenges we face, knowing that Jesus has faced far greater challenges. It's the motive for our service that's paramount. We should celebrate his rule, the rules that contemporary society seek to throw off. We should take refuge in him, so that when his wrath flares up in his anger, we will not be destroyed. Throughout the psalm, there are references to a time of God's wrath, anger and destruction language that isn't fashionable in contemporary society and which it's possible we can feel uneasy with. But once again, we need to take account of the motive for God's punishment. God's requirement is simple. We should ask him or we should kiss his son. In other words, we must recognise his Son as our Saviour and King, King Jesus. And we should live our lives in service and obedience to him. Again, language that isn't fashionable in contemporary society. But this is God's word. And we know it can be relied upon to be true and correct. We know because David's kingdom was destroyed. Jerusalem, Zion, was destroyed, and since then, people and nations through the years have continued to destroy each other. The destruction spoken of in verses 9 and 12 is still yet to be fully realised. But there will come a day when Jesus, who lived, died, and rose again, will dash this world to pieces like pottery in his righteous anger. We don't know when that time will be, 
but we know that this will happen just as surely as the other events that David wrote about in this psalm have taken place. If you're not yet a Christian, that prospect should fill you with fear and trembling. If you are a Christian, let us rejoice that God is in ultimate control of the world in which we live and that he will do what is right and just. Let's just take a moment of quiet and then I'll pray. Father God, we thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you have appointed Jesus as king. And we thank you that we can come to him in obedient service and that we can escape from the wrath and destruction that awaits those that are outside of Christ. We pray for those nations around us, for those rulers, those kings, for our politicians, for all those who in this psalm are spoken of as raging against you. And we pray that where there are godly men and women, they would use their positions for influence and good. We know that you will bring about your purposes and we pray that you would continue to save men and women and that you would help those in power and authority to do what is right and what is honouring to you. We pray that we would take that into our own lives and our own circle of influence and that you would go with us and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. But uh, let's um, close now by by praying. Father God, we do thank you again that um, you have appointed your son as king, that he does reign over this world. And as we go out from here, we do pray that you would, um, by your spirit, allow us to uh, submit every aspect of our lives to him as our king, that he would reign over our lives. And, And as people see that, we pray that through that witness, others may bow the knee to him as well. We Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. In Jesus' name. Amen.